0: The reason why we want traditional knowledge projects underground more attention and the work of linking traditional knowledge and climate change is because IPCC says that. IPCC says that communities can adapt to climate change based on traditional knowledge.
1: Figure out how we can get more voices from the Pacific in the next report, right. both in terms of research that is being referenced mm-hmm. and also in terms of the roles like authors, um, so that they are the ones reviewing the final text and can advocate for issues that are relevant for the Pacific to be included. Come
2: to Mary and greetings everyone. Welcome to the Pacific Wayfinder, your guide to navigating the cross currents of security in the Blue Pacific continent. My name is Aka Rimun and I'm your host. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land from which we broadcast today, the Nanawal and Nambri people. Now, today, I'm very happy to have with me friends and colleagues from the ANU, but also from the Pacific, who will be having a conversation with me on the IPCC report. Let me introduce them to the far left. We have Salah Dr. George Carter, who is from Samoa. Kiriba Santuvalu, but who is also the director of the Pacific Institute here at ANU. The broad focus of Dr. Carter's research interests explores Pacific Island peoples and states' influence and agency in international and regional politics. His interest explores international politics, covering negotiations, security, gender, finance, justice, science, and traditional knowledge, climate change, geopolitics, and regionalism, as well as the foreign policy, and diplomacies of small island states in the Pacific. Dr. Carter, thank you so much for making time for us um, this morning. Now, right next to me, I want to introduce the beautiful Mahalani Delaney. Mahalani is the um, project officer for the IPCC Outreach in the Pacific ANU Institute for Climate, Energy, and Disaster Solutions. Mahalani moved to Canberra at the start of 2021 to pursue a master's in environment management and development here at the ANU, which she has obtained. So congratulations on that. Exactly. And with both her parents being Papua New Guinean, she's always been passionate about working on solutions to the issues affecting the Pacific region today. Thank you for joining us also, Mahalani. It's a delight to have you join this podcast.
1: Thank you, Akka. It's lovely to be here.
2: Now, for our audience who have been following our discussions and conversations here on the Pacific Wayfinder, we covered in the previous weeks the um, analysis, if I may, of the IPCC report that was released in March. And in the first series, we had Dr. Henry um, Ivarature and Professor Mark Howden speak to us about the science of the IPCC synthesis report. In this podcast, I want us to narrow down to layman terms, what the report means to our planet Earth, in particular to us in the Pacific. Let me kick off the conversation by asking you the question, what are your initial thoughts on the report? What key features stood out for you and why are these features critical for our Pacific um, blue Pacific continent?
1: Yeah, Mark, last week in the podcast went through kind of the more detail on the report, but The the overall message I find with a lot of the IPCC reports is that it's quite um, confronting at first. Climate change is absolutely happening now. It's getting worse, it seems, with each assessment. Um, As with this one, one of the findings that hit me was that the impacts are worse than they had previously assessed and what they had thought. Um, And those impacts are already quite severe. So that was um, really disheartening. But on the same on the other side of that, I guess, is that there's still a message of hope in the IPCC report. And the fact that we do have all of the knowledge, resources and tools available today to tackle the real key issues from climate change that we're facing um, is quite, I guess, uh, empowering to know that we can do that. The thing that's missing is that we're not taking the action that we know we need to take and we're not taking it fast enough. And that was kind of, yeah, my my initial thoughts on it. I might pass over to George and can talk about some of the further findings after.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you very much for the invitation to come and uh, give thoughts and ideas about uh, the IPCC report and also impact on the Pacific. Now, what the IPCC report speaks to what many in the Pacific uh, leaders, policymakers, uh, it, people in education uh, across the Pacific have been saying all along that the climate is in crisis. The climate crisis is here. It's not just something that's stated within political documents, it's not just something that's emphasized in national policy. But this lived reality is saying that the climate crisis is here that the report which compiles the science evidence in the last seven years says that there are severe climate risks and through global warming that we've seen this urgency to try and limit uh, warming to 1.5 degrees. What the report also underscores is what we've been saying all along that there's widespread loss and damage, not just in the Pacific or with across small island states, but across the world, that it impacts Uh, communities, countries and regions through extreme weather events. Now we've seen this uh, uh, this year with Vanuatu with two tropical cyclones, that these extreme weather events impacts the ability of not just communities, but also states in terms of resources to rebuild. Two cyclones, one after the other, is something that we should take uh, off Is something that's not just concerning, but we should take that as the new normal. Uh, mm-hmm. These extreme weather events, as well as that low, um, as well as that loss and damage, uh, is impacted because of slow uh, set on set events like uh, water availability, uh, agricultural production. In terms of floods, this is what the report says. You know, while it gives us the science in the, what has been happening in the last seven years and projections, but it also uh, details to us what the lived reality is on the ground in the Pacific. And this, as we will unpack in this podcast, informs why this is not only national and regional, but should be international attention from uh, in terms of addressing climate change.
2: Thank you very much uh, for um, initiating this very important discussion, uh, Dr. Carter and Mahalani. Two things stood out for me from your um, responses to that first question: the paradox between the good news and the bad news. We are so close to crossing the overshoot level. At the same time, there is still hope. That's one. The second thing that was mentioned by Dr. Carter is the um, the realities on the ground and the impacts of um, climate. Um, challenges and and this drastic changes in the pattern of the climate system and more hazards, as you mentioned in the case of Vanuatu, Um, how does this then translate to where we are in the Pacific today? And I think it's so important for us to be able to translate this to the language that our Pacific um, people, our Pacific policymakers will, will understand. And, and we do, I want to say at the outset, how great it is to have a science body such as the IPCC, a global science body that comes together and put together these findings for us. But then getting the findings across to every region of the world, including the Pacific, what do you envisage are the most important things we we do now? And how does this report speak to some of the policies that are already um you know, developed by the Pacific, and there's a number of them, 2050, Blue Pacific Strategy, the Boyd Declaration, the recently released security um, outlook on Pacific. How do we um, sum up all this in terms of uh, Pacific uh, leadership and
1: actions? It's a very big question. Yeah, it's Arca. a very big um, question. And I'm sorry to drop <laughs> that, that on no, 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 thank you for that. Uh, one thing that just from your question, you mentioned overshoot. Mm. So I think that's one thing that might be worth just um, explaining from the report. So it the report showed that we are likely to exceed 1.5 okay. degrees of warming by um, early 2030s. And obviously 1.5 is the warming temperature level that's been advocated. Mm. Um, Especially from, by the Pacific. The, yes. Yeah. For a long time now. And so, um, the, the idea of overshoot is one that the report explains. Basically, it's saying that we might exceed 1.5, mm-hmm. so we might overshoot that level, and then we can bring warming back down below 1.5. So basically, there are two different policies that we can aim for. One is 1.5 with no overshoot, or overshooting 1.5 and coming back down. And if we exceed that level of warming and then have policies to cut emissions and bring the warming level back down, there's actually heat. Um, there's actually a lot more risks associated with that. So there's risks of irreversible impacts that we can't um, can't change in the future. And there's also a lot more impacts that we will see. And there's um, there's also feasibility concerns with carbon dioxide removal methods. So to actually be able to bring warming back down, mm. which is what they talk about in overshoot um, scenarios. But in terms of exceeding 1.5 degrees Celsius and uh, the need for cutting emissions on a global scale, that's something that I've always been um, drawn to in the reports, I guess, having Pacific Island heritage, but having lived in Australia for the majority of my life, it's, Mm. I kind of am drawn to that global side of the issue and the fact that the Pacific are a very, very small emitter in the grand scheme of things and historically. And so we really do have to rely on global cooperation and international mechanisms to make sure that we can cut emissions and keep them to 1.5. So that's just on one aspect of the report. I might throw it to George on Mm. your...
0: Yeah. What the report also tells us uh, in terms of as we try to not only take it on board but uh, interpret uh, some of its findings is mm-hmm. that that uh, some of the most vulnerable populations and who have contributed the least um, are the ones who are disproportionately affected and we say that uh, as my alluded to the Pacific you know contributes no less than more than zero point uh, zero percent of um, and I can be corrected on this um, <coughs> To greenhouse gas, uh, global greenhouse gas emissions. That said, um, as the report have said, that uh, uh, damages and deaths from floods, droughts, and storms all around the world are now fifteen times stronger. That we are also seeing that in the Pacific. So um, yes, uh, communities which are the most vulnerable uh, are the ones being impacted by the most. It also tells us that adaptation is a solution. Uh, and that resilient development is in the, is important. And that has been a part of the benchmark in terms of uh, not only community, national, regional responses, but the report also tells us there's a lot of maladaptation. And I think uh, Mahelani can allude, uh, sort of will touch upon this in terms of projects that have an unintended outcome. And again, I'll leave this to Mahelani to talk about this. But it's important for us to Yes, there has been a lot of work, but the report also saying that there's a lot of these uh, cases of maladaptation. The report also says there needs to be a lot more done in terms of financing. Uh, well, finance has been made available through international commitments and through the various different work of donor partners. It's still not enough for to um, assist or work with countries in the Pacific to adapt to these uh, growing number of changes um, which the report also says
3: the australia pacific security college aims to strengthen our blue pacific continent through learning policy engagement and regional collaboration you can follow us on facebook twitter and linkedin and find our library of research blogs podcasts and videos on our website pacificsecurity.net our podcast the pacific wayfinder brings together leading voices on our shared security challenges. Stay up to date on the latest thinking on Pacific security and subscribe to the Pacific Wayfinder wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I think you underscored a very valid point about the Pacific contributing. And if I hear correctly, I think it's also written um, clearly in the report that the Pacific contributes Below zero point zero five degrees yeah. of
1: total oh, emissions. Zero point zero point zero five percent. percent I, th- I think, th- and that's a combination of all small island developing states. Okay. So that also includes, you know, from the Caribbean. So it would likely be lower than that number. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now
2: we're in this episode. We're trying to focus on next steps, way forwards for the Pacific. So I want to. Um, take a turn on our discussion and look at implementations in in the Pacific. And can you help us understand, uh, Mahalani, the work of the IPCC in translating this very scientific report, Mm -hmm. but important uh, report for for our region? How is some of the work at the IPCC reaching out to some of the issues and, and adaptation
1: and mitigation efforts on the ground? Sure. So I guess in terms of implementation, as George spoke to, adaptation is a key priority area for the Pacific, and that's figuring out ways of responding to current and future impacts. Um, And the report is very technical. Mm. And it does, though, do a good job of outlining what adaptation measures have worked to date, um, and what is likely to work in the future, and kind of what needs to be in place in terms of governance um, and policies to support those adaptation measures. Um, And when those aren't taken into consideration, as George was saying, there are actions that can be maladaptive, which is basically when they have um, a negative outcome that they weren't intended to have. So one of the the common examples in the report, not necessarily in this one, but in the IPCC's adaptation report was on seawalls and how, you know, when they're first built, that's great. They stop coastal inundation, but then as time goes on, they obviously need resourcing, they need funding, and technical expertise to keep them up. And often, um, donor programs don't, you know, give funding for a long term that they need, and they can also have negative impacts on the natural environment. Um, so that's just one example of um, maladaptation. But the report also points to the fact that adaptation measures have limits and it breaks it into soft limits and hard limits. So soft limits are things that can be overcome with more finance or technology or expertise. And then hard limits are when the the climate changes are so much that there's actually no further options. So for example, if um, a place runs out of freshwater resources completely, there are no options to adapt. And the the only option is you know, migration, which mm. you know a lot more about. Um, but so th- yeah, those are some of the adaptation considerations. And uh, as George also pointed out, it, it speaks to the need for international finance to be able to fund these measures. And the fact that the 100 billion um, climate finance goal, which was agreed to in COP15, that hasn't been met. Mm. And so um, with Pacific Island uh, nations, a lot of their nationally determined contributions, which are the actions they commit to taking on mitigation and adaptation, they're reliant on external funding. Absolutely. So yep. that, yeah, without that external funding, very limited in the options that they're able to take mm. um, to respond. And George, you can probably speak more to the nation, to the NDCs.
0: Yeah. Thank you. So I'll uh, respond to the question based on um, the linking of IPCC to uh, national and regional um, uh, attention and uh, priorities, but as well as I wanted to highlight sort of keywords for me that uh, come from the IPCC that uh, sort of emphasise and drives a lot of the work um, from the Pacific. One is catastrophic. Part of what this report uh, brings forth is that the impacts are catastrophic. uh, And this is something that, has been um, argued for by uh, the lived experiences of Pacific leaders and peoples in, in, you know, in various negotiations and within their policies. And this is what the report also says: that impacts are catastrophic. Yeah. The report also tells of severe that there is will be severe risks to communities and to um, countries, and that has also something that. Um, uh, is a big priority to why there is this attention in the Pacific. And of course, urgency, that there must be not just more, but more attention in terms of uh, uh, working around climate resilient, but also the movement uh, that's been progressed by countries to move into low carbon development. Uh, so I wanted to stress. And the link of IPCC to this work and the words in which that uh, has been articulated in this report is IPCC provides that science, uh, that science evidence, and Mark Howden and Henry Evatore last week mentioned that. What happens is this science or this report, while it comes is not a political document, it comes out of a political process, but it's not a political it informs the work of the UNFCC. It informs the negotiations but it also informs and drives the work in the Pacific and how the Pacific works with its international partners. The reason why we want traditional knowledge projects underground more attention, and the work of linking traditional knowledge and climate change is because IPCC says that. IPCC says that communities can adapt to climate change mm. based on traditional knowledge, but the report also says there's not enough attention in the work of traditional knowledge. Okay. So this is where that uh, it's the bedrock in terms of the work of climate change in whatever level, mm. international, in the regional, or at the community and local level. We say this big IPCC report says we need more attention in the work around loss and damage. This is how it's based, right? Mm. So that's the um, how it's been and uh, where it will grow. And so some key documents around or or frameworks in which the Pacific operates and how this translates into policy. Of course, number one is this new vision around the Blue Pacific, right? Blue Pacific identity is fundamental because it talks and it's a continuing legacy of uh, the region's countries uh, uh, and as well as organization working in a collaborative and coordination not just for security, but also in climate change. So that's mm-hmm. important. Of course, we know that the Blue Pacific Framework, our 2050 Framework, speaks to this okay. importance of the attention on climate change. In the technical side, the IPCC informs the work of organizations like SPREP, Secretary of Pacific Regional Environmental Program, as well as SPC, the Secretary of the Pacific Community, as well as all other crop agencies and NGOs and civil society and universities like University of South Pacific. These organizations uh, uh, use the scientific report in, to inform uh, and also map the trajectory of their work in the coming years. So it's a, that's the sort of um, it's a connection, but it's not the only report, hmm. right? Um, and it's fundamental to understand that it's an important international document that frames the urgency that's needed by all countries. Uh, And if we don't do that because of severe risks, and if we don't do that, we say that there's a lot of, uh, we understand the catastrophic impacts it has on communities. So that's that link, hopefully in that five minute, Mm -hmm. tries to map map out why this document is important. But of course, I think we can explain, go into a little bit more is uh, how to implement that on the ground.
2: Yeah thank you that that's a very um useful insight uh, especially in making that connection between the IPCC and the Pacific and then the rest of the UNFCCC in terms of um, climate um, action and efforts um i just want to go back to what you said uh george earlier at the beginning of the conversation when you alluded to the um leadership and the um momentum you know of the work that the pacific has done on raising the the profile of you know of climate change and the impacts it has on the region and the rest of the world and and now bringing into the discussion just just recently on the um connection we make to ipcc Do you think the Pacific is a strong component of this work that IPCC is conducting? And if if no, what areas? And maybe this is also for you, Mahalani, to to come in. But I want to look at it in terms of regional efforts, um, what SPREP is doing, um, USP you mentioned in terms of research. uh, The Pacific Islands Forum is also coordinating a lot of work in this space and also on the IPCC side, what has been undertaken on the ground to bring the science closer to communities?
0: Mm. I, I,
2: <clears throat> I know I always ask these long ended three, <laughs> three, four questions. I don't know what you're I'm sorry, guys.
1: <laughs> sure, so I'll start off with. Part of the question, which was about um, the representation of the Pacific Pacific within the reports. So, that is something that in this project we've been doing to communicate the findings of the IPCC, which we've been doing for the last um, two years. And the feedback we've gotten from people throughout that process has been that they felt there wasn't a strong Pacific representation of, um, sorry, representation in terms of the publications that were being referenced in the reports, Mm. but also in terms of the um, IPCC author roles and people in the decision making. And so what happens in a lot of the reports where they have these global maps, say of impacts or vulnerability, because there's not a lot of research from the region being put in there, um, it comes up with neutral representation. it'll be grayed out or not have actually data available Mm -hmm. for the Pacific, which is one issue. Um, And yeah, as you were saying before, traditional knowledge is a part of the IPCC that they say, we need to be focusing more on using traditional and local knowledge to adapt to climate impacts. But it doesn't actually have um, a strong, doesn't have a strong, uh, stock take, I guess, for lack of a better word, on what is already being done in the Pacific region. So when we're talking to people about what it says, we often hear, oh, there's all of these things already taking place, which might be reflected in other regional reports as well, but isn't making its way hmm. into the IPCC. Um, and that's something that we're we're working on at the moment, which we okay. can talk to um, throughout the podcast. Yeah.
0: So while the IPCC is not a political document, it's a scientific document, a consensus around scientists, uh, it goes through a political process and it brings together a congress of um, scientists from around the world representing countries as well. And Mahalani alluded to in terms of the lack of um, Pacific research, but also the representation of uh, Pacific scientists in this uh, Congress, and so that's part and parcel of. While there is a great attention and part and majority of the project that um, the Institute of Climate, uh, Energy and Disaster from mm-hmm. the Australian National Pacific looking to is communicating IPCC, we are also hearing and partners. hearing from partners in the Pacific is that they want to know also how to participate in this process of IPCC. Mm. And it's fundamentally important that we provide this platform mm. to see how we can gauge more in terms of increasing that participation. However, while there's been a lack of representation of Pacific scientists and maybe not enough Pacific research from researchers all around the world on the Pacific in this report, the Pacific have also used this as a way to uh, advocate for particular special reports, mm-hmm. special reports on SIDS or special reports on smaller developing states and a special report on ocean, sorry, special report on the 1.5, uh, which links to small island developing states and a special report on ocean. Now, these two reports are not part of the main IPCC, however, they are special reports. And part of this comes through when countries from the Pacific as well as small island states through the EOSIS and G77, were advocating for the measure of 1.5 back before 2015, there was a pushback from other countries saying that we can't use 1.5 because that doesn't what IPCC says. Mm. And so the advocacy at that time was saying, all right, let's pursue a special report on 1.5. And when that report concluded, right at the time of COP fifteen, uh, COP twenty one in two thousand fifteen, it stated the world has progressed up beyond one point one warming, which also calls on the urgency. Mm-hmm. So, as what I'm saying here, while we have had, specific, while Pacific countries have had a small representation, and maybe the science research has not been there, they've been able to use IPCC as a process as well to advocate. For special measures like the special report on 1.5, and more importantly, the report that came in a couple of years ago on special report on oceans that links ocean to climate change, and while this forms again a basis for more work, not only at the UN international level, but also supports the initiatives on the ground that governments are called for calling for to increase more attention in terms of uh, ocean climate change nexus, bro.
1: Mm. Mm. So, th- I might just add quickly just on uh, using parts of the report to advocate for issues, I think this last report was the first time that it explicitly mentioned loss and damage, mm. um, which is, you know, a really big win, I guess, in being able to reference that from the report. And it mentions that um, currently we're not able, sorry, It mentions that currently our understanding of loss and damage, um, including economic and non-economic losses and damages, isn't well understood and it's not well addressed by current policies. So that's another example of using IPCC reports to hone in on specific issues relevant to the Pacific.
2: Hmm.
3: For the latest analysis on climate, environmental, human and national security trends in our Blue Pacific region, you can read the APSC blog at pacificsecurity.net. Our contributors come from across the region and include policymakers, practitioners, and academics. If you would like to contribute, get in contact with our team through our website.
2: So that's interesting that you mentioned, um, Mahalani, the loss and damage, and I know that the momentum on this work has been built up over the f- last corps. and last year it was uh, achieved when they finally included um, the text on loss and damage. What does that mean for us in the Pacific?
1: So I guess... Um kind of separate to the previous COPs, which George can talk to um, a lot better. But it means because the IPCC reports are a key input into negotiations, into the international um, climate negotiations at COP, it means that any material in there has a lot of weight in negotiations. So you can use that new text on loss and damage to say, look, the IPCC have said that loss and damage isn't well addressed by current mechanisms, and then you can use that to advocate for stronger responses and stronger commitments at COP. And then I think the other part of your mm. question was referring to the the loss and damage agreement, which came out of COP twenty seven.
2: Okay, so that's interesting, Mahalani, that you mentioned um, loss and damage, and I think it's one of the achievements of our Pacific region because it's been uh, the momentum for this work has been built up for some time until just last uh, year's COP. COP27 mm-hmm. when this was finally agreed into, yeah, um, achieved at the at the meeting. Um, but I want to, s- look, we've had a quite interesting um, conversation beginning with the science, what the IPCC report says, and then narrowing down to how this translates to layman terms in terms of the Pacific um, but I want us to look in terms of next steps and where we are. And you mentioned that the national um, determined contributions from the Pacific are there in place. So every, everyone is tracking with their own progress um, towards this global um, commitment, right? Where does Australia fall in all this, if, if I may ask?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think it's um, it's quite complex, I guess, in terms of Australia's climate policy I think everyone probably has their own views of it. Um, In terms of linking it back to what the IPCC report says, so it says that the emissions from existing fossil fuel projects alone will exceed 1.5 degrees. So that means that not even approving new fossil fuel projects, we will already exceed 1.5. So if we think of that in the Australian context, we recently passed the safeguard mechanism mm. amendments, which changed the amount. Um, well, it basically put a cap on a number of the largest polluters. So it means that a heap of new fossil fuel projects won't be able to go through. Mm. But at the moment, I think it's about 116 fossil fuel projects are being proposed. And so that still means if half of them go through, you know, 70 new fossil fuel projects, and we don't have a solid plan in place to phase out the existing fossil fuel infrastructure. So um, you know, I think last week as well, there were six six nations from the Pacific agreed to a fossil fuel non-proliferation agreement. Um, and given what the IPCC report is telling us on fossil fuels alone exceeding 1.5, I think that is an area that Australia, if they want to be serious about supporting Pacific climate priorities, Mm. that's an area that they need to make a commitment to in saying phasing out existing fossil fuel projects and saying no to new fossil fuel um, expansion. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No. Yeah, no, maybe I just want to
2: add that I raised that question because Australia is not just a part of our Pacific region, but I mm-hmm. we also understand that it's one of the most vulnerable countries also to climate impact. So it would be interesting to see the trend and movement of you mm-hmm. know these policies and commitments um, as we move forward. Now, I want to focus on next steps and the recommendations that were spelled out from the report. Can both of you um, give us a bit? More detail about what this thing means in the Pacific, and I'm going to just throw in, you know, the elements of climate financing. Where are we on this? Because this has been a, a long-standing debate, whether the Pacific is accessing it or not, and now the more um, prominent issue of us having to, you know, come to a, a borderline of reaching an overshoot completely, or you know. What am I saying? Uh, or, or, and us coming to the crossroads of, you know, no turning back. It would be too late for us. What a, What's in store for us? But also because there's a lot of talk on transitioning to green energies. And does the Pacific have the capacity?
1: Did you want to start on that one, George?
0: Sure. Uh, so what the report also tells us is the need for sort of Uh, responses now and sort of long-term responses. And these are, although this is nothing new, this is something that has been said in previous IPCC. Mm. Um, I think it's also important that part of the big focus on the current IPCC are on the impacts, uh, that it's uh, for many places catastrophic and the severity of this and we don't take action. But there still are many things that need to happen. So first is in terms of adaptation. While there has been great progress in the work that has been carried out, as I've said earlier, the report tells us there are so many different gaps that still exist. Part of this is also continuous challenges. So in places like things like maladaptation and also the increasing link to places that cannot adapt, Mm -hmm. uh, where the issues around loss and damage will come through. What needs to be done there? More attention, of course, um, financing to support uh, these adaptations. In terms of mitigation, yes, there has been the attention to low carbon development, but all around the world. And we see this in through the NDCs of all countries now to try and find that year which they peak their emissions. And it's not not the same across the world, Mm. you know, we see that countries like China, like uh, India still lag with emissions that will peak in the 2060, 20, 2070. 20, so we need those. And what the Pacific has been calling for is peaking of emissions immediately mm. right in 2025, 2030. So there is still that big gap in terms of mitigation, um, but also in terms of financing, then that's where the $100 billion was there to support not only adaptation, but also mitigation. mitigation. Big gap there still hasn't reached that $100 billion a year. When we call for a war in Ukraine, countries are able to mobilize hundreds of million dollars yeah. in two, three months to support that initiative, I mean, to support that important cause. But when you say about the cause that we are all saying that all countries are impacted with, uh, not just countries, but even the private sector are still lacking in terms of its uh, support. And so the report also says an encouragement for not just governments, private sector, but across that there should be initiatives, increasing initiatives to call for more and finance and technology and the transfer of technology from uh, uh, developed countries to a country like Kiribati or to a country like Samoa is fundamental for this transition. That technology uh, to respond to uh, these climate changes is made available, but also that can be utilized within You know isolated islands and not just within the bigger economies so that's something that's fundamental but a part of that also is that cooperation Mm. not just between states or among states but also with the private sector uh to try and encourage uh these big transitions now those are the big ideas Mm. that we have been working and living with in the last uh decade or so but this as the report is saying this needs to be done more so now Uh, The other thing that's also promising for me is the fact that this report also talks about uh, vulnerability, which communities are more vulnerable, or as well as um, the need to be more inclusive uh, uh, and talks about uh, uh, equity, uh, that there are um, the need to promote uh, and prioritize equity, climate justice, uh, inclusion in the transition process, uh, that it's not just, focusing on big uh, country or community scale but the importance of the in the, this work on transition uh is that we are reminded uh, you know of in, to put vulnerable communities uh, or First. vulnerable peoples at the forefront mm. which talks about you know um, importance of gender, disability, uh, and uh, and all other um, aspects of Mm. social inclusion.
2: And and that is so important because we want to ensure that everyone has access to, to support whatever adaptation and mitigation efforts there are. Okay, so I'm going to ask you, um, it, w- it will never be enough, an episode for us to discuss this you know, massive um, topic, but um, I'm going to ask you to s- just sort of sum up and help policymakers. If you were to provide advice, how would you sum up a summary of summaries of scientific reports in just one or two sentences?
0: Yeah. IPCC report is a massive report. It's a big undertaking to read it. There are different services that are provided in terms of provided universities, but also institutions that try and interpret the report. We cannot stress the importance of the link of this report to international discourse on climate change, the regional as well as national. There is a direct link. What we need to work more, and this is something that uh, many of us are passionate and Uh, coming in meetings in next week in Fiji we will be discussing this is how we make this accessible for everyone uh. and part of this is also how to participate in that process and part of that is that collaboration uh, uh, but also the prioritizing the work and research coming out from the Pacific not just through universities but the work that the um, Uh, national departments, national agencies, and local researchers are doing it. There needs to be a mechanism or platform that elevates this research. But not just that, but also finding ways to connect it through journal articles to get it within the IPCC process. Uh, So there's what I'm saying here, I guess, is the need for more collaboration. Uh, IPCC is not a report that others write on the Pacific, but something that the Pacific should be part of mm. uh, and should be leading also in these processes. As what we're trying to articulate, we have in the past had the opportunities in terms of this being possible, but we are also in a space that we can do more.
2: Yep. Mm. That's slightly over your two sentence, uh, okay. Mark, but thank you. That <laughs> That's really useful. Anything. And Mahalani, any lasting comments from you?
1: Yeah, so just to build off what George was saying, um, it is important to note that these reports are global in nature mm-hmm. and especially the last synthesis report, which was the synthesis of the summary reports. Um, so the information for policymakers across the Pacific, I think you, and it's mentioned in the report that all of that needs to be um, adapted, I guess, for the local context and because there isn't a strong um Pacific Islander representation mm-hmm. in those reports at the moment, there will be other reports and publications from across the region that will also be beneficial for policy making. Increasing representation in the reports, which George spoke to, and it's really important for getting text in there that can be used in negotiations like at COP. We at the moment are doing um, a project which George spoke about in Fiji next week we're meeting with people from across the region to to figure out how we can get more voices from the Pacific in the next report both in terms of research that is being referenced and also in terms of the roles like authors um, so that they are the ones reviewing the final text and can advocate for issues that are relevant for the Pacific to be included.
2: Thank you, Mahalani, and thank you, George, and thank you also to our viewers and listeners. Till next time, we hope to see you again here on the Pacific Wayfinder, your guide to navigating security cross-currents in our blue Pacific continent. Kamrapa.